Lockdown Science. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Science with me, Ellie. And me, Andrew. Another week in lockdown means another episode of this show where we try to highlight some of the science we've found recently that has absolutely nothing to do with coronavirus and, importantly, has made us laugh or made us look at things a little sideways. I'm excited for today's show. It's been a good week for science news. Well, on that note, let's get on with the show. Science of the Week First up, we have our Science of the Week quiz, where I test Andrew on his knowledge of science that has hit the press in the last week or so. How are you feeling this week? Moderately ready. Ooh, that's better than last time. Well, I think I've, I've got my confidence up from improved performance last week over the first week. So, I you see. know, this is probably the week where I crash and burn. It's all like boxing. You've got to be like mentally ready for it. Yep. It's a sport. Yep. Okay, brilliant. Well, let's go straight ahead. Number one, what is the name of the meteor shower that has been visible from Earth this week? Oh, no. It begins with an L. It does. It's the Lyriads? Oh, you're so close. I'm going to give you that. Lyrid. Lyrid. Lyrid moving into your shower. You should know this because we've been looking for it. (laughs) We've mostly been looking for Starlink. True. Okay, well, it's the Lyrid meteor shower, and it's not the same as Starlink, which is Elon Musk's satellites, which are also very I'm going to come on to that later. We're going to come on to that. Okay, it's the Lyrid meteor shower. It was technically visible from the 16th to the 25th of April, but the peak of activity was the night of the 21st of April and the morning of the 22nd of April. Do you know why it's called the Lyrid meteor shower? Because it is seen in the air area of the constellation Lyria? Lyrid? Lyra? Lyra? Lyra. Yeah. It's called the Lyrid meteor shower because if you follow the trails back to the point where they appear, it'll look like they're coming from the constellation of the Lyre, although it's actually just a matter of perspective from where we are. Yeah, they're significantly closer than the stars in the constellation. They are indeed. But fun fact, according to the Greenwich Royal Observatory, the Lyrid meteor shower is the oldest recorded meteor shower that's still visible today. Oh, yeah. interesting. When it was, was it first recorded? It was first recorded in 687 BCE. That's a very wow. long time ago. That's like proper history. Yeah. Olden times. Right, I'm going to give you that one because I think it was just really a matter of pronunciation. Number two, what's the estimated longest time it would take for a Lego block to be completely broken down after being lost at sea? Ooh, longest time. Yeah, yeah, there's a range. I mean, even the mean is going to be long because it's plastic. Mm, it what is. size Lego block? Uh, just one of those standard little ones. Four? Don't Eight? <laughs> Well, I, I mean, come on, that's going to make a big difference. Oh, don't come up with the specifics. Okay, okay I'm going to assume I'm going to assume a four by two. I think that's I think that's a standard Lego okay. block. Okay, and of course. I can calculate this carefully enough that that's going to make a difference to my estimation. a huge difference. I should say the paper will have given a precise size of this. I just can't remember it right now. I'm going to go with half a million years. Actually, surprisingly more optimistic than that. It's 1,300 years. It's not too bad, is it? No, I mean, on a biological scale, that's terrible. But on a geological scale, that's not bad. And I thought, yeah, I really did think it would be quite a lot longer than that. And that's the upper limit. So this statistic came from a paper published in Environmental Pollution by Turner et al, where they collected Lego pieces from beaches in Cornwall, analysed them with x-rays to determine their chemical composition and therefore when they were made, because the exact composition of Legos has changed over time. And then they paired them with intact replica Lego pieces from collections to see how much they'd worn down while at sea. 
because then they could tell what they look like originally mm. versus what they look like now. And then they use this to estimate how long it would take for the blocks to wear down entirely. Mm. Cool. Interesting. So this might sound like kind of trivial, but the brilliant thing about analysing Lego in this way is the fact that you can age it so precisely. So if you assume that the Lego entered the sea soon after it was manufactured, then you can tell the rate at which it degrades, whereas it's much harder to do that with other kind of random bits of plastic you find. So the study isn't just relevant to Lego, but other plastics with a similar composition. Mm. So I did say that 1,300 years was the maximum estimated time, but the range was actually anywhere from 100 years to 1,300 years. So that's actually, I mean, that's a massive margin there. But either way, like you said, it's not great from a biological perspective because there's a large window there where it's in the ocean potentially causing damage. But on a geological timescale... Not as terrifying as a lot of things. No, kind of better than I thought. Yeah, which is, I mean, a low bar, but still. Number three. How did blue skies negatively affect Greenland last year? Oh, this has got to be extra melting of the ice caps. Yes, exactly. They contributed to the ice sheet losing about 600 million tonnes of ice. Wow. It's a lot of ice. A paper published by Tedesco et al. in the Cryosphere last week found that one of the greatest contributing factors to the exceptional melt last year was a record number of cloud-free days. This had a few effects. Firstly, sunlight was more likely to directly fall onto the ice, warming it up. And secondly, fewer clouds means less snow, so the ice sheets aren't being added to at the same rate. And then consequently, less snow means that some darker areas of ice were exposed, which absorbed heat better. So for a slightly macabre bonus point, do you know how much higher the global sea levels would be if the whole of Greenland's ice sheet melted? Oh, it's quite a lot, isn't it, I think? Um, 20 metres? Not that much of quite a lot. Five metres? Seven metres. Hmm. I'm not giving you that. But it's no, a lot, I was going to go with five to start with, and then yeah. I thought, no, maybe that's not quite enough. I mean, it's still bad. Yeah. Seven is, is bad, but yeah. not. we're not saying it's all melting right that's, now. That's kind of bye-bye Netherlands, bye-bye Bangladesh, bye-bye Cambridgeshire. Yikes. But that's not what we're suggesting right now. It's just that there was an exceptional meltage last year. Yeah. And meltage is definitely a word. Right, number four. Rosie, a Humboldt penguin from Suby House and Gardens in Yorkshire, celebrated a special birthday this week. It marked her being 10 years older than the life expectancy of Humboldt penguins in the wild. How old was she? Ooh, 30. Yes, she turned 30. I didn't know that. I, that was a, that was an educated guess based okay. on how long I thought a penguin would live for. I was going to ask if you were a big Rosie fan. No, no, I actually hadn't heard that. Well, Rosie was bred in captivity and arrived at Suwabi in 1990, but Humboldt penguins in the wild live about 15 or 20 years. So where do Humboldt penguins live in the wild? South America. Yes, South America, or more specifically, coastal Chile and Peru. So they're listed as vulnerable by the IUCN. That's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And some threats to their natural populations include overfishing, climate change and ocean acidification. Now, did you know that Humboldt penguins in the wild will burrow down holes into seabird poop, a.k.a. guano, to lay their eggs. I feel like I might have seen that on a nature documentary. Yeah, yeah but so the biggest threat to them used to be that people would over-harvest the guano for fertiliser, meaning that they had nowhere to lay their eggs. Oh, yeah, exactly. Sad. Did you say Suwabi? Mm. So we might have met Rosie. Yeah, we've been to Suwabi. We've been to Suwabi within the last couple of years, exactly. and there was a really old penguin there. Do you remember yeah, the old there was penguin? Yeah, there was a penguin that basically didn't swim. It just wandered around around and like went straight up to the keeper and and they just fed it by hand because it, wouldn't, it basically wouldn't jump in the water to chase chase the fish anymore so presumably that was rosie that's probably rosie yeah. she's doing well 
She's a good old girl. Well, happy birthday, Rosie, from here at Lockdown Science. Yeah. Number five. What potential breakthrough in creating hydrogen-powered cars was announced at the end of last week? A sponge. Yes. You've been reading the news. Well, maybe. Maybe I'm just good. (laughs) I think you've been reading the news. Oh. Yes. It's a new material that facilitates carrying much higher quantities of hydrogen fuel, and it's been likened to a sponge. As we know, cars are a massive source of CO2 emissions, and whilst electric vehicles are available... Hydrogen is another source of zero emissions power that's being suggested for powering cars, planes and trains. Can you think of any problems for storing hydrogen in a tank in a car, though? Well, hydrogen is pretty light, yes. so it's going to float. So you'd have to have some mechanism to keep your car on the ground rather than have it just sort of... I mean, it might be a good fuel for planes because yeah. they just float anyway and then all it needs is to drive them forward rather than to generate lift. True. Well, I mean, so the the main problem that was listed is that hydrogen is incredibly light, like you said. And in our atmospheric pressure, to carry enough hydrogen for a 100-kilometre journey, so that's like one kilogram of hydrogen, you need an 11,000-litre tank. Mm, that's not very practical. It's not very practical. Can you imagine how big the car would be? So to get around this, tanks have been developed which store the hydrogen at incredibly high pressure, but this needs specially made tanks, which would be really expensive. But a study published in Science by Chen et al. details a new material they have developed which can store lots of hydrogen without super expensive high-pressure tanks. It's made from organic molecules and metal ions and is sort of like a sponge because it holds hydrogen in cavities, allowing it to be stored at much lower pressure. So yeah, a sponge, but not one you'd want to wash yourself with. No. But that's pretty cool. Wouldn't be very good at cleaning. Would not. Be quite scratchy, I think. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so time for the scores. Assuming that I'm going to give you number one, because I think it was just a pronunciation issue, and we had been looking for that constellation, so you definitely knew it existed. That gives you a really good four out of five. Yeah. Best yet. You should should keep up this confidence. Yeah. Yeah. What are we aiming for next week? Five out of five? Five out of five. Let's go for it. Journal Club. Next up, we're bringing you some of our favourite paper discoveries from this week. What have you got, Ellie? Well, today's study is very close to my heart because it's about sugar cravings. Ah, yes. I mean, with you here, I can't pretend that I don't have a sugar obsession. Earlier on, I ate most of an Easter egg while in a virtual lab meeting. So I like any kind of research that shows there's a biological mechanism making me want sugar rather than a simple lack of willpower. A study published last week by Tanatal in Nature found that it's not the connection between the tongue and the brain that makes us want sugar, but the connection between the gut and the brain. The team of researchers used high-tech imaging to monitor the signals between the gut and the brain when mice were given sugar solutions and were able to determine which neurons were at play. And interestingly, the neural pathway identified was only activated by glucose, not fructose. So when I say to you, I feel like something sweet, and you're like, I'll just have a piece of fruit, not relevant assuming I'm the same as a mouse. Anyway, the researchers also showed that mice who were given a choice between a glucose solution or a solution with an artificial sugar substitute in it, like those low-calorie sweeteners that are in lots of diet foods, massively preferred the real sugar. After 48 hours, mice were almost exclusively drinking from the real sugar solution and leaving the substitute alone. But maybe this is just because sugar tastes better, right? Well, these imaging results alone are cool, but they don't tell you what the main mechanism of craving sugar is. All that it tells you is that the gut senses sugar and tells the brain about it. But 
is it the tongue or the gut that's the main driver of the craving? What would you have thought before? The tongue, presumably. Yeah, because it's like you eat it, it tastes that's nice. That's what you're tasting. Exactly. Yeah. Well, to delve into the mechanism further, they used mice that were engineered to lack sweet tasting receptors. So that is that their tongue couldn't tell their brain what they'd eaten was sweet. And then they gave them solutions of sugar and sugar substitutes. These mice still preferred sugar over a sugar substitute. So it's clear that the mechanism that makes them want more sugar isn't just an obsession with the taste of it. They then overrode the gut-brain circuit that they had earlier identified was responding to sugar so that it was no longer functioning. So that's the circuit which goes from the gut saying, oh, I've got some sugar, and then goes up to the brain and tells them about it. So that was no longer functioning, and the mice no longer had a preference for sugar. So this means that it's actually a connection between the gut and the brain. That is, the gut senses sugar and tells the brain it's good, and that makes us want more of it, not a desire for the taste. So I guess what I'm saying here is, yes, this study was done in mice, and therefore I can't say it's directly applicable for humans, but also that it's not my fault that my gut wants sugar. That's just the way it is, and you shouldn't judge me for eating all the Easter eggs. Case closed. Crack out the Cadbury's. Not so fast, because that's still implying that it's after you've eaten some sugar that your gut goes, oh, that's good, I'll have some more of that. Doesn't give you an excuse for starting eating it in the first place. Oh, damn it. But let's just say that, you know, I just fancy a little piece and that's acceptable. Yeah, and then... I have to lock it in a cupboard and hide the key so that you can't get to it for any more. Okay, but at least once I've had that first bite, no longer my fault. Yeah, okay. I still think I need to learn my lesson from this morning of not leaving an Easter egg on the table next to you while you're at the lab meeting. I have no control, people. It's I, I'm going to have to admit it. Anyway, I feel like I'm not going to win this argument, despite the science. So let's move on to your paper. What have you got? Well, you're going to be proud of me this week because I haven't just gone back to a classic old paper that I found funny in the past and revisited it for the show. I found I found a new paper. Go on, give it to me then. This is a paper called What's the Deal with Birds? I have always wondered that. Yeah, so have I. I mean, I used to be an ornithologist. I mean, I still am an ornithologist. It's just not what I'm paid to do. But what's the deal with birds? I mean, that's a bold title right there. So this is a study by Daniel Baldessari from New York in the USA, and it's published in the Scientific Journal of Research and Reviews. Sounds pretty good, right? I mean, sounds like a legit publication, I'm sure. I'll give you the abstract. Many people wonder, what's the deal with birds? This is a common query. Birds are pretty weird. I mean, they have feathers. WTF? Most other animals don't have feathers. To investigate this issue, I looked at some birds. I looked at a woodpecker, a parrot, and a penguin. They were all pretty weird. In conclusion, we may never know the deal with birds, but further study is warranted. I'm hooked. Yeah, I've also got my doubts. Got my doubts about the science in this paper. Just a, just a few more quotes from it, really. Birds are very strange. Some people are like, whoa, they're flying around and stuff. What's the deal with that? Um... This is great. I mean, this is great science. This is how all science should be written. I feel like I'm part of the study. Yeah. The methods. The methods include, I looked at three different birds, a woodpecker, a parrot and a penguin. I looked really close at them, squinting and everything, (laughs) trying to figure out what was up. (laughs) It's just fantastic. The results. The results. I have to admit, these birds were weird. I mean, the woodpecker was hopping around on a tree, smashing its bill into the wood. The parrot had a really big bill and was really noisy. And the penguin looked more like a fish. It was swimming around and diving underwater. And in case that doesn't convince you, there's some quite detailed results. Yeah. Table one, principal components analysis used to generate aggregate measures of weird birds and what their deal is. That's some detailed statistics. Yeah, I I mean, it's got eigenvalues and percent variation 
and time spent 10 metres and time spent 5 metres and time spent Mount Bush. And, oh, yes, Mount Bush. Yes, and also latency to Mount Bush. Ah. And the columns are weird birds and WTF. Oh, yes, very common statistical categories. I mean, I'm beginning to have my doubts. I also don't understand the figure. Yes, explain the figure. So the figure is a four-pointed axis. One is labelled looks like a fish, the penguins over there. Another is labelled weird beak, the parrots over there. And then there's climate change and an unlabeled axis, and the woodpecker in the middle, and a red line labelled The Deal. Well, what is The Deal? Well, The Deal is that this isn't a real paper. Oh. But that's kind of the point. OK, because I was really enjoying this yeah, so far. Yeah, I mean, it's all written like a proper paper, apart from, you know, the language. Yeah, so I'm just glancing over your shoulder, and I'm looking at the statistics, and that's all accurate statistical terminology. Yeah, I mean, I calculated repeatability using an overdispersed binomial GLMM in the R version 3.1.1 package. Hashtag statistics. Hashtag statistics. N equals 44 males, six trials per male. All sounds good, but it doesn't really read properly. And it has phrases like WTF and whoa, what's the deal with the birds? But the point is that this isn't really a proper paper. This is a guy who, like many of us, was being pestered by a predatory journal. So what's a predatory journal? A predatory journal is one which emails scientists and invites them to publish articles in its journal. Except it's not really a journal, it's not peer-reviewed at all, and what they want is your payment for the article publishing charges. So we should go back and say, when you, for people who haven't published... When you publish in a genuine journal, you have to pay a fee. It's a strange aspect of the peer review process for most journals. Yeah. Well, a lot of journals you don't have to pay for, but then people pay a subscription to read the articles. But you now get open access journals because I hope most of us would agree that science should really be open access for everybody. But in order for the journals to still make money, they then charge the authors for publishing there. So these predatory journals claim to be open access journals and therefore demand to charge a publication fee. And we've all had these emails, right? So like, for example, I'm doing a PhD. I'm not a doctor. I get quite a lot of dearest Dr. Bladen Eleanor and, you know, something about how I'm very distinguished and therefore I should publish in their journal. And it's normally from a journal of veterinary medicine or something. Yeah, nothing to do with with what you do. Okay, so Um, this guy... So anyway, this guy decided that he was going to respond to this by writing a paper a clearly fake paper, and submitting it. And the journal accepted it and then asked him for $1,700, which he queried. And after a long battle, which he documents quite neatly on Twitter, he wore them down. And despite the fact they'd assured him that they were not a predatory journal and that the, the paper had been reviewed by three independent reviewers, the review was, I mean, sparse at best. I think it said something like this is a very good paper and should be published. This paper, which has things like whoa. Whoa and WTF. Yeah. Yes. But he wore them down and they published it free of charge. So the Scientific Journal of Research and Reviews, published by Iris Publishers, is a predatory journal. But the problem is that the, re- the reason why he did this is really to highlight a point. He got this paper published, which was quite clearly bogus. Anyone reading it would realise that it's not real research and it's, it's just being silly. But the point is that lots of scientists are conned by these journals and publish things in them not really realising that they're, you know, they're, they're sort of hoaxed out of money and publish stuff in them. And other people will publish stuff in there because they want to get publications out quickly because 
publications really important to a scientist's CV. And that leads to dodgy science being published, which means that you sort of lose a bit of faith in the science that's out there. And it can be really hard. You know, this journal has a proper sounding title, proper looking cover page. It sounds legit. It's got a website. It's got a website. It could be really hard for people to be able to tell the difference between genuine good quality science in good journals and this kind of rubbish that comes from journals just out there to make a quick buck out of people. Yeah, exactly. Because we should point out that Daniel Baldessare is, this is not his finest work. No, no, no. It's his finest comedy work. It's his finest comedy. Well, I don't know, actually. Maybe he's done other stuff. This is excellent comedy work, but But he's a genuine academic trying to make a point. Yeah, he's he's a bona fide assistant professor of ornithology uh, and a very good scientist. And, you know, he's doing this because essentially, like, the only way that these journals are going to be taken down is by people refusing to publish in them or by people doing what he's doing of highlighting the fact that they're predatory and also refusing to pay their, in in the process, refusing to pay their publication charges. I'm just looking over your shoulder now, and another thing I enjoy is the keywords. So in a normal journal, you'd have keywords which highlight the kind of things that are in the article. And the keywords of this are birds, ornithology, behaviour, phenotype, WTF, genomics, climate change. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Sums it up. Oh, oh, I... I nearly forgot the acknowledgements. Mm-hmm. We thank Big Bird from Sesame Street for comments on the manuscript. Several trained monkeys transcribed the videos. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear this did not get reviewed <laughs> by three independent peers. Yeah. But this filled me with a lot of joy, so I'm really glad that you brought this up this week. Yeah, and if you want to give Dan Baldessari a follow, just in case he does this kind of thing again, he's at EV Ornithology. Brilliant. Long may his pranks on Predatory Journals continue. Amen to that. Isolation Recommendations Right, well, we've just got a couple of minutes left, so let's finish off with some isolation recommendations. Andrew, I've set you the challenge again this week of your best Twitter account for lockdown. What are you going to be recommending? Well, this is one that I've recently discovered. I mean, literally, I've discovered it this week. Um, And it's a Twitter account called at Virtual Astro. And essentially, they tweet quite a lot about all things stargazing based so looking up into the night sky what can you see and the reason i've discovered it this week is because we've been spending our evenings looking outside trying to spot the starlink satellites that are circling the earth we've currently failed i should say but this account does give updates quite regular updates t minus 30 minutes t minus 10 minutes to when they're going to pass over the uk with details of exactly what time you need to look where in the sky you need to look and how long they'll be visible for So if you're into a little bit of lockdown stargazing from your garden or out the front of your house, this is a good account to follow, I think. Actually, this has been really nice. We don't tend to look at the stars that much. And this week we've actually, because of the lyrid meteor shower and Starlink being more visible, we've actually taken time to look up at the sky. Yeah, just go outside for 10 minutes after dark and look up and see Venus is really clear and bright. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And what have you got this week? Well, my tip this week is an Instagram account, and it's that of Joel Sartore. Joel is the founder of the National Geographic's Photo Arc, which is a 25-year photography project to show the world the beauty of biodiversity and inspire action to save species. You've seen Joel Sartore's work. I have. He's on Twitter as well. So good. So his Instagram, and I suppose his Twitter as well then, is just full of these stunning photos of lesser-known species. I followed his Instagram account for a really long time, 
but it came to my particular attention today because earlier today he posted a photo of a palace's cat. Oh, you know how much I love palace's cats. Yeah, they are great. I won't start talking about them because I will never stop. But please go to Joel Sartore's Instagram account and check out that photo because he's got some info about palace's cats. And the image itself just perfectly brings out that grumpy cuteness of Palace's cats. I think that's why I love his photos so much, because they really seem to like capture something about the behaviour of the animals in a still image. They are incredible. And they're all taken, I think I'm right in remembering, they're animals that are from zoos around the world. That was kind of a project of documenting what was there, because... You know, I mean, for something like a palace's cat, they live out on the Asian steppe and they're really hard to find and see in the wild. And so getting good photos of them and documenting them in the wild is difficult. But by going around and capturing photos of animals that are in zoos, he could sort of represent the world's biodiversity. Yeah, exactly. And that's the point about inspiring action to save species. I guess it's this thing of if you show the animal in all its glory, it kind of inspires people to really appreciate it. Well, that's all we've got time for today. You're still thinking about Palace's cats, aren't you? I'm hardly ever not thinking about Palace's cats. Good. OK, thanks for joining us today. We love to hear what you've thought of the show and if you have any science news you think we should check out. So get in touch with us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Bladen. And I'm at Eleanor underscore Bladen. Or you can email me at publicity at camfm.co.uk. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We originally only planned to do two episodes, but we're having so much fun we've decided to continue. But seeing as I'm also doing my other camfm show us and stem plug alert at the moment will be coming to you fortnightly so we'll be back with you in two weeks time saturday night at 6 30 see you then with some weird and wonderful science 